Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. In Genesis chapter 6, it begins and says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves and whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Of all of the stories that is in the Bible, of antiquity, I would venture to say the story of Noah is the one that is the least understood and the most um, misunderstood. It's the one that's probably mistaught more than any other. And I am including not only uh, famed Sunday school teachers in, in showing you the little boat thing that they used to use, obviously that didn't work, right down to some very key features that this scripture goes on to say. Um, In particular, I want you to take note of the fact that in the first verses that we read there, verse 3, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. This is a mistake that has existed uh, some um, millennia, some several thousand years. Most people read that passage of Scripture and they say, well, you know, uh, God decided to judge mankind and he gave Noah 120 years to get ready. That's not what that verse is about. That verse is about a covenant that would be formed with Noah and his descendants in which that God would then begin to, from this event, to limit the age, the maximum age of man to 120 years. Because up to this point, if you read the previous chapter, the the length of years for these men, these fathers who had lived, the average is given to us from Adam up to this point, the average man lived to be 912 years old. And that, coupled with the story of Noah, most uh, Bible critics and skeptics, you know, look at those two elements and say they're just totally unbelievable. Unbelievable that a man could live such a length of time. Of course, if they were to do a little probing and checking, they would discover medical doctors in this age tell us that if you could be prevented from being exposed to direct sunlight from the moment that you were born, that you would live approximately 1,000 years. That is the your exposure to direct sunlight that accelerates and brings on the aging process in all of us. And it's quite interesting that the body is already basically, the one we have, is basically designed to live for a thousand years if we could be kept from direct sunlight and the radiation which brings on the accelerated aging process. There's a lot of people who believe that the earth at this particular time when Noah was building the ark was really enshrouded by an entire canopy of clouds, that there was no direct sunlight upon the earth. If you'll recall, at the end of this story will be the first rainbow. The rainbow had never been seen before. And a rainbow is caused by direct radiation of the sun shining through our open atmosphere, through the mist of some moisture, and it produces the prismic effect of the curvature of the sun. The bow is put into the sky. And they had never seen such a thing. It's also said that in those days that it was a very temperate climate. There was no four seasons. They'd never had ice or very severe cold weather or severe heat, you know, up to this point, that the world was a much different place. They also say that had you lived in such a world where it was encased by these clouds, that there would have probably been a double atmospheric pressure. 
Instead of at sea level being 15 pounds per square inch, they say it could have been as much as 30 pounds per square inch, and that you living in that atmosphere, you would have ingested way more oxygen into your blood system through normal breathing than, say, the average guy can now. Your athletic and physical skills would have been significantly increased. In fact, it's proven that world-class athletes, the reason why they really are is because their lungs work better than other athletes. They're able to process the needed oxygen that they need, and they're able to, as a result, have greater strength. There's a lot of physiological things that go into this story that usually get dismissed. The average Christian never looks at the story as that it's provable. They look at it as a kind of a fanciful story, sometimes originating from Sunday school, and it's a, children, it's a children's story. It's a story we tell our children, but, you know, we really don't believe childish things. But the fact of the matter is, and for my own uh, experience, many years ago, when I was um, a logistics engineer working in the aerospace business, I got challenged to make a presentation that would illustrate my logistics engineering skills to a, a dinner, a kind of a, a presentation. And on a whim, I mean literally on a whim, it was suggested that maybe we could do a logistics engineering analysis presentation on Noah's Ark, the design of Noah's Ark. And so many, many years ago, I and a team of engineers proceeded to do that. It took us about two weeks. It wasn't that long. We did a capacity analysis, a structural analysis, a thermal analysis, and looked into all the hydraulics of how it would have to travel through the ocean, a weight structure analysis, all of the normal things that we do when we do um, our trade uh, in, in the business world. When we got done, we made a presentation to an entire team of logistics engineers and basically showed not only was the story of Noah's Ark uh, feasible, it was highly probable, exactly as the Bible describes. If you change any of the features or factors that the Bible gives, it drops way off uh, in, in terms of its feasibility and probability. That in truth of fact, by our best expertise, we can basically prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this story was true. There really was such an ark. It really did carry the animals of the world and mankind. And it did come to rest on Mount Ararat. So I have always found this story... Uh, to be one of those interesting things where it always reveals to me the depth of where a person's faith is at, particularly their knowledge of Scripture. If they can go back to the story of Noah and they can find evidence to believe it just as it is written, then this is someone who really is taking into account all of the knowledge that God has acquainted him with, all of the understanding of the other factors, and can come up with a hypothesis and an understanding of something way back in antiquity. By the way, that's a very, very important skill to do. Because the scripture, if you take the, the prophetic message of what is to come in the future, that's what you have to do the same there. You have to believe what God has said will happen. And you have to hypothesize, if you will, how could such a thing be? And instead of just dismissing it and saying, oh, it's fantasy, or it's not true, or it can't be correct, actually look with discerning eyes and open ears to see if the evidence supports it. And so... I don't find it to be a surprise that God himself refers to this story having to do with you understanding the second coming. 
it's a little bit like a time phase thing. He, he pushes you back into the past. If you can come to terms with things of the past, you'll better understand things that are getting ready to happen in the future. It's kind of like we're here and we can kind of weigh the past and compare it to the future to see what happens. Follow along with me now as I read uh, through part of chapter 6, um, all of chapter 6, in fact, and we're going to examine what I consider to be eight points of the telling of the story of Noah. And as we go through those eight points, I want you to take note of every one of them matches us in our future. There are eight things that tell the story of the story of Noah, and they seem to match what we have in front of us. Beginning at verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children in them, they, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and the intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits its breadth, 50 cubits its height, 30 cubits. It shall make a window for the ark and finish it for a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with a lower second and third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh, which is the breath of life from under the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons wives with you and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every kind of the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and the animals after their kind of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and a female, and the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing which I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. The thing that I would like you to take note of in particular here is there came a time when God said enough is enough and that it's time that man needs to be judged. One of the things that is most difficult 
uh, I find for New Covenant believers is the idea that somehow God is a judge. I have heard this expression, maybe you've heard the same. It seems like some people, they read the Old Testament and they read and they say, well, it seems like there was a God of the Old Testament. And then I read the New Testament, and it seems like there's a different God. You know, it was like God the Father and he was really upset. And then there's God the Son and he's like real happy and friendly. And it's like, you know, they, they don't quite make the transfer. In fact, some teachers go on to say, well, God's going through a transition. And God's just kind of, you know, moving along with us here. And as a result, it spawns all kinds of theologies, as you can imagine. In fact, there are some theologies that say, well, God is not really a plurality at all. God's really and truly an absolute one, but he manifests himself as a father, very upset, a son who's a good friend, and a spirit who just kind of ethereally moves you. And they truly teach that. They teach that that's the very character of God. And some go for uh, this. They, they accept the plurality of God, but they don't believe. They don't believe that the God who has been judging generation after generation in previous millennia would ever do such a thing today. In fact, some teachers teach that this was really the last full-time judgment of God. This judgment by water was the last one, and in fact, it is a very popular uh, Catholic teaching that God will never judge the whole world again, that this is it, you know, and when he put the rainbow up there, he, this is how they twist the words. They say, you know, God put his rainbow in the sky to show he would never again judge the world, and they don't finish the sentence, by water, because God does say by his prophets he will judge the world again, only this time by fire. And that it teaches us, Peter in specific teaches us in Second Peter 3, that there will be mockers in the last days, and it will escape their notice, and they will forget this story. They will forget that God, the same God that we have today, is the God who knew Noah who did judge the whole world by water and did save Noah and his family. And they, it says, we'll forget that. They'll forget this story about Noah and what it meant and what was associated with it. Another misconception that we read there, maybe you caught on it, you know, the story that it was two animals by two. Well, that was for the unclean animals, but it was by sevens for clean animals. There was a lot more to this than really meets the eye. And if you were going to build an ark by the dimensions that it is, it's not going to look like a ship. It's, not, it's going to look like a box. And oh, by the way, the word ark means box. It doesn't mean ship. It means box. You've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, the box that held the two tablets. He said, make a big box. And that's what you will float in above the judgment. There's a whole series of the details, if we were to go in here, that would examine. There are things that are just slightly different from what we have typically been told. They all add to the confusion, and they all add to the reasons for unbelief. Instead of just accepting what he said and pressing on with it, instead they slur it, it's almost like the serpent in the garden, you know, just twisting the words just enough that it just makes it where it's not 
is not feasible in our mind's eye for it. If I go back, let's look at a couple of points of the telling of the story. Verse 1, now it came about that men began to multiply on the face of the land. How many of you have noticed the news reports and the whole world media is now announcing effective October 12th, that was three days ago, the world has six billion people in it. Six billion people in it. Do you know what? When I was a young man, there were only three billion this is fast. This is recent. In 1970, there was only 3 billion people. In 30 years, three more, we've doubled. And in fact, there is as many people living today in this generation as ever has lived in the history of the world, including all the people from creation up to this generation. There are, of all the people who've ever lived in the world, 50% of them are alive right now today on the earth. Truly, we're like those days of Noah, aren't we? That man has multiplied upon the face of the earth. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were on the earth at that time, but it says they multiplied and there was a bunch. And it says that they began to... Uh, marry the daughters of men, and they took wives for themselves. And I want you to note in verse 2, whomever they chose. In every judgment that you will find in this Bible, when God judges Israel as a nation or any other people, one of the things he always says about that generation is over the issue of who they marry. If you remember the last generation, Yeshua specifically said, and they will be marrying and giving in marriage to whomever. Now, marriage, you know, as from Genesis 1 and our first portion, marriage was created as a part of this world, part of the garden, part of the things that come with mankind. When God created man in his image, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. So he created for him a helpmeet and gave him a wife. And God is the one who created marriage. But it's by distorting what God has created, and that's what's being illustrated here, it's, it gets to a certain level to where that they just completely lose sight of what God originally started. And they begin to take the blessings of what God made, the thing that would be good for man, and they now are abusing it to such an extent that it is now you know, a reason for sin and misbehavior. And it's not necessarily speaking individually here because there's an individual story of every person's life, of who they marry and what happens in the process of this. But it says in that particular day that it was going on rampantly. By the way, in our day, it's going on rampantly. I can remember as a young man the shame, the, the great difficulty, the trauma, the tragedy of a an aunt and an uncle who got divorced in our family and how the whole family was literally weighed down uh, by the tragedy of the events and how much counseling was made in an effort to try to maintain it and so forth. And any person who's gone through the experience of divorce and remarriage will give you the testimony that it is tragic. It is very harmful. It hurts. It rips deep down into your soul and scars you. 
But in our particular day, you would have to agree with me that it's gone to whole new levels. Whole new levels. There are men and women now, it's not unusual, who've had multiple marriages, you know, like four and five times. And then, of course, they're always coming in to try to get counseling to try to figure out which end is up. And it reflects... You know, our people. There's an interesting census that was taken concerning the church. You know, the church, when I was a young man, used to pride itself on that they didn't have the ills and woes of common man. They didn't have to deal with things like alcoholism and drug use and, and divorce and all of that. You know what? There's no difference anymore. In your average church today, there's no difference. The church has no ground to stand on that say that we're separate from the world on these issues. These are common things amongst all peoples of our day. Now, in that day, it was a sign that God said, I've had enough. Isn't it interesting we have the same thing in our day? I wonder if God is the same God who is the God of Noah, and he's about fed up with all this. As the brother just said, you know, the God, the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If he felt that way then, I'm sure he feels that way today concerning these matters. Then he goes on to say that I will make man, I will make a covenant with man, a different covenant with man, and I will number his years to be 120 years. He said there's a limit to how much I can take of man and of flesh. It's almost like a father who's finally put his foot down and said enough is enough, you know, kids, this is it. You know, no more beyond this point. And he's still trying to dwell with them with understanding, and he sets a limit. I want you to take note of, as I said before, the amount of time that God gives Noah to build the ark, and it's only 100 years. It's not 120 years. If you look there in chapter 5, verse 32, Noah was 500 years old. Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And if you look over in chapter 6, and verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. How old was he at the time? 500 years old. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupted upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of flesh is before me. Get ready, build an ark. 500 years old. He said, you had those three sons, go build an ark. Now, how old was Noah when the flood began when he got in the ark? Chapter 7 and verse 6 says, now Noah was 600 years old when the flood water came upon the earth. So Noah only had 100 years to build the ark. That verse about the 120 years of limiting man has to do with the results of what will happen. Because after Noah, Noah will live approximately 300 years after the flood. His sons will live approximately that amount of time. And we get all the way down to Abraham 10 generations later. He doesn't live but 175 years. You get down to Moses, he only lives to be 120 years to the days of King David, in which that he said, a man's life is threescore and ten, seventy years, 
but if he has a long life, he lives fourscore, eighty years. And to this day, that's how you would characterize life today. Um, it's about 70 years for the average guy. If he lives to be 80, he has a long life. But you don't hear of anybody living past 120. And in fact, in our world, there have been many cases in which that somebody is represented. They lived to be 120, and they died that year. Nobody lives past 120 years. God made this covenant with Noah and his descendants and those that would follow, and he said, the length of your days is going to be 120 years. That's it. I can't take no more of you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that's a kind of an interesting characterization of us. The reason why we grow aged and we die is, quite honestly, God can't take much more of us. He's really being merciful. You know, let's get get your life over. You've messed it up enough. <laughs> so I don't have to judge the whole world. Let's just limit you for a while. Again. But it says that we do know that there is a great judgment coming at the end which will come upon all peoples. And it seems to be following the very pattern of what happened to Noah. Great population increase. Marry whom they wish to marry. Even though they're limited to 120 years, it's still getting worse still getting worse than it ever was before. Going back to chapter 6, it says he speaks of man in verse 5, and he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a very, very interesting verse. It speaks of three parts of man. His intent, his thoughts, and his heart. The three things that characterize what's inside of a man. He's not talking about his outward behavior. He's talking about what really he is inside. What he really has become inside. His impulsiveness is now only toward evil. All of his thinking is evil now. And his heart, where is his heart really at? His heart is only toward evil. Any one of those things could have led him back. Any one of those things could have appealed to God for mercy. If it had been his intent to do good, it's just that his thinking was all fouled up and his soul was all fouled up, God would still have been merciful, still found a way to work with it. If some of his thoughts had not been evil, some of his thoughts had been pure thoughts toward God. But if deep down inside God had said his heart really is got some goodness, it's just that he's intending to do the wrong thing and he's thinking the wrong way, he would have still been merciful. He said only after all three did he make the decision enough is enough. And then he said of it, and he used this word, and this I try to emphasize this word when it shows up in Scripture. It says, every thought was evil continually. And in our language, we have two words that we use here interchangeably. One is continuously, and the other is continually. Continuous and continual. I want you to take note he used the word continual. What's the difference between continuous and continual? It's like your faucet. If I turn the faucet on ever so bit that it drops, a little drop comes out of the faucet, 
That's called a continuous drop. It comes and it intermittently stops and then it starts again and then it stops and then it comes again. That's what we call continuous sin, repetition. But continually means you've turned it on enough to where that all you have is a steady flow of water and it never stops. God said of man in those days, it wasn't that he was continuously doing this. It was continual. It never shut off. It never stopped. He started doing it and it just never stopped. It was just like a flood, an open spigot of every thought being evil, every intention being evil, every heart being evil. There, was, there wasn't even a break. It didn't even go back to neutral for a while. It just was all the time. He said, enough is enough. It's time for judgment. I find that very significant because in our day, you could characterize much of what is happening the changes that have taken place in our generation. It used to be continuous sin before. It would be there for a while and it would stop. Now it's continually. Continually. 24 hours a day now in the world, in every nation, at all times. You used to, if you wanted to go sin, you'd have to wait till nighttime go down to the right part of town, then you could sin. It don't make no difference whether the light's shining or it's dark or whether it's five in the morning or nine at night. It goes on all the time now. It's continually sin in our world today. Now, God says upon this that enough is enough. He says, I will blot out man. That's a very interesting expression, a very interesting way for God to describe how judgment will come. Because we know that he's intending to cut him off from the earth. We know that he's going to remove life. But this expression, blot out, what does that mean? They believe that this is one of the first references to the book of life. If you remember the teaching of the book of life, it says all of our names have been written in it before the foundations of the world. And it doesn't say that God comes in and erases your name from the book of life. It says he comes in and he blots it out. In other words, he just puts more ink to the page until there's no more a signature or a name that can be recognized. And you blot out the name. Now, let me explain to you the difference in a book about blotting out versus erasing. If you erase it, you could write it back in, couldn't you? But if you blot it out, there's no more room on the paper. There's no more position for it to go back. Now, when it comes to the doctrines and the teachings of God's eternal judgment, there are two very profound things that I personally find very disturbing about God describing this judgment. One is this characterization of blotting out the name. If it comes to the point that he blots your name out, it's not going back again. It was in the Lamb's book, but it's not there anymore, and there is no other place to write it in. Because those names were all written before the foundation of the earth. The, you cannot do anything to get your name written into the book, but you could potentially do something to get your name blotted out of the book. Secondly, we know that 
it's the, the, the real book of life is really the Lamb's book of life. We know that that book is held and controlled by the Messiah. That the price that he paid is what paid for the whole book, for everybody in the book. The Messiah did not die for just those people who committed sin, who repented and received the Messiah. He paid for all sins of all men. All sins. Paid the price for them all. I think one of the most tragic things that will come in hell is when people realize, you know, I didn't go to sin. I didn't go to hell here because of my sin. I went to hell because I wouldn't accept the redemption of God because all my sins were taken care of. And I'm just here in hell because I rejected God. And the Scripture clearly tells us in Hebrews 6 that if you reject this wonderful sacrifice from the Messiah, this payment for sin that he has made, if you reject it and then you decide somehow later, I'm going to have it again, he only got on the cross one time. He doesn't get back on the cross a second time. So let's say that you came to faith, you have accepted the blood of the Messiah, somehow you've, I don't know how you do this, but somehow you've rejected it. It says he doesn't get back on the cross again. There's one sin, one sacrifice for sin, that's it. And if your name gets out of that Lamb's book, he doesn't go back and get on the cross again so he can write your name back in the book. That is a very frightening thought to me. That therefore, once we have tasted of this great sacrifice, freedom from sin, this great redemption, we need to be real careful with it. We need to understand how powerful it is to begin with, put our confidence and our assurance in him that will do it, and then we need to be very careful to make sure we don't do anything so as to disturb that in any way, shape, or form to cause our names to then be blotted out, not erased, blotted out. And thus this judgment that is spoken of the first judgment of God upon all of the earth, he speaks of it as this is when I will blot man out. I do not believe that when we're in the millennial kingdom, other than those that are listed and specifically spoken of, are going to be a lot of people who drowned in the great flood somehow make it in the millennial kingdom. I don't believe there will be anybody there who would say, well, where were you at in the previous age? Oh, I was there with Noah, but I missed that boat ride thing, and I drowned out there. I tread water for 30 days, but you know, it was 40 days and 40 nights, I just couldn't make it. I believe the only people who will come from that particular generation and that particular time are Noah those eight souls, that's the scripture gives, because God really did blot them out. Now, in some cemetery teaching, that's seminary teaching for you laymen, they say not everybody died in the flood. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a great flood, and there was a lot of people who died, but there were a lot of people who didn't die in the flood, and that's the reason why we have all the different peoples that we have here in the world and so forth. Boy, if you listen to that, you listen to nonsense. That is sheer nonsense. There's not one bit of evidence to suggest that, either from the scriptures or physically in the earth. The clear evidence is that we have all originated from the same source. With the advent of DNA, 
testing. They're finding all kinds of discoveries with regard to this to verify that. There is clear evidence we have all originated from one particular mother. Gee, you could have read the Bible and figured that one out. But scientists, praise God, they're finally coming around, finally coming to terms with this, as we finally learn. There is more than sufficient evidence that this world has gone through a great flood. When I lived in the Front Range of Colorado, it was kind of interesting for us to drive up from Colorado Springs through Monument Pass and on up into Denver, because there's an area called Castle Rock, and it's just, it's an incredible little piece of terrain right there. There's a bunch of little islands, and it's a seacoast. It's a seacoast that the sea went way out over into the Great Plains. And they found petrified palm trees right there near Castle Rock, right there in the mountains. Some of the big uh, dinosaur fossil beds are right up in the area where they all got collected together and they all died in the same place. Lots of physical evidence support the story that God really truly did do this great judgment. Where we sit today used to be the bottom of a great ocean. I mean, you can go down to... Uh, of uh, the um, Arbuckle Wilderness Area, like the University of Oklahoma students, can go down there and find prehistoric fossils of creatures that used to live in the bottoms of oceans right down here in Oklahoma. There is more than sufficient evidence to suggest that this story is true. There really was a great flood, a great judgment. Every culture that lives in the world today tells a story of a great flood and how their descendants came from that flood. Every ancient anthropological study has always come up with that same conclusion. They all share that same experience. Now, for those of you who um, have some difficulty with the idea that the earth has been around for a much longer period of time than the Bible suggests, this has always been a fascinating thing for me. I think the hardest person there is to teach the Torah to is a geologist. A geologist is so loaded up with so many facts that he thinks about how the world works and has come to be that when he reads these passages, he just struggles with them. He just uh, kind of wants to believe them, but he just can't come to terms with it. In our lifetime, we've had a very interesting event took place. It was up there at Mount St. Helens up there in Washington, in which that big old volcano blew all those trees down there and blew all those trees out there in Spirit Lake, and we got petrified wood in two years. That's supposed to take, you you know, you remember, it's supposed to take 150 million years to do that. Did it in two years, right in front of our eyes. And you go back and carbon date that stuff, and that stuff says it's ancient. Isn't that fascinating? Only we saw it. We saw what did it right in front of our eyes, and we still don't believe it. That has always been a great example to me a lot of times of the Scripture when it speaks of uh, certain events, certain things that God did. Some of it we just look at, we just can't believe it. We just can't come to terms with it because it kind of fouls up our whole theory of on how everything works and where everything came from. And in particular, what God says He's going to do in the future. With regard to this business about I will blot out mankind. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Turn with me to Zephaniah, if you would. Zephaniah chapter 1. Let me read an interesting passage of Scripture to us. If you think that uh, it was difficult for those guys to accept the idea that God was going to do that great judgment, then uh, consider what God has said is supposed to happen in our days. 
Zephaniah chapter 1 is the, is the book I recommend that you do not read late at night, alone in your house. In verse 2, it says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He goes on to tell you that he's talking about the day of the Lord. Now, what he says here is even worse than what he told Noah. See, he didn't say anything about I was going to wipe the fish out. You know, the fish was going to make it through the water, you know, the flood. But he said, I'm going to, I'm going to affect birds. I'm going to affect mammals, living creatures, and I'm going to blot out man. I'm going to cut him from off the face of the earth. And here he goes on to say, he says, I'm, I'm going to get a little tougher this time. He says, even fish won't make it this time. And he says that he will completely remove them from the face of the earth. I personally believe that when the great resurrection, the rapture comes, God's going to do something similar to what he did back in the days of Noah. It's going to save a whole bunch of animals. It's not just you and I going to get resurrected and raptured off the face of the earth. I believe a whole bunch of animals are going to too. Because in the millennial kingdom, it says there will be animals. How did they make it through the day of the Lord? Well, God had to deliver them just like he did back with Noah. He had to provide a way to deliver them too. And I believe there will be fish in the millennial kingdom, but there will be fish that will have been raptured and then put back properly. And oh, by the way, I think God knows how to do that. I think he can figure that all out. Whether I don't know whether he's taking a big aquarium up with him first or you know just exactly how he's going to do all that, but it's all going to work out just fine. The one item that I find most disturbing today, particularly amongst those who study eschatology and do uh, earnestly try to understand the prophecies of the end, is probably this issue of the day of the Lord and not believing what God has said. They really don't believe that God is going to truly judge the world that severely. In fact, Dispensational theologians will specifically tell you that during the Great Tribulation that there will be a whole bunch of mortals down here on the earth. You know, the church has been raptured up and there will be a bunch of mortals on the earth, namely my brethren, my Jewish brethren, and somehow they all mortals make it into the millennial kingdom and uh, that uh, they made it through the day of the Lord. But somehow they made it through the Great Tribulation, and they made it through the Day of the Lord. Well, you might make it through the Great Tribulation, but I guarantee you are not going to make it through the Day of the Lord. Because the Scriptures are very specific about that one. Look at chapter 1, verse 18 of Zephaniah. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. All of them. That's pretty clear. That's pretty specific. If you say, well, I just don't particularly agree with that particular verse. Monty, you got any other verses that are like that? Well, sure I do. You know, over here in Isaiah chapter 13, when he talks about the day of the Lord, he says, I'm going to make man more rare than fine gold. Now, how many of you seen 24 karat gold? A couple of you. See, look, you, we know gold's in the world. Just a couple of you have seen fine gold. He says, but I intend to make man more rare than the golden wedge of Ophir. What's that? It's a legend. It was about Solomon's gold mines, the gold mines of Ophir. 
and there was a rumor that Solomon's gold mines were so rich that they found an actual gold bar, a golden wedge, an actual pure piece of gold, big chunk, that was just pure gold. And they used to say of Solomon's gold mines that that was the kind of thing they found. It was, it's known. It was a legend. I mean, Solomon's gold mines were very lucrative, but they were like any other gold mine. You had to dig it out and smelt it and so forth. There was no golden wedge of Ophir. Gold wasn't that big in that quantity. Sure, there were some nuggets and some other things like that. But there was no golden wedge of Ophir. And so he says by the prophet Isaiah, he says, I'll make man more rare than that thing. That thing never existed. I mean, if he's going to make man like, it, like something that never existed before, you think a few will make it? That's the description that's given of every description of the day of the Lord. You ever seen a wine press, one of those really big wine presses? After they press the grapes to make the juice, to make the wine, do you think you could go back to that press, reach in there and pull out a plump grape and have a taste of a grape? I don't think so. There's no grapes left. God says, I'm going to tread like a wine press. You won't find any more plump grapes left when I get done with these. They're gone. These are spoken of repeatedly, again and again, over and over. He says, this is what the day of the Lord is. And yet we still have men today, those who would call themselves believers, who believe of the future things that are happening based on their misconceptions of Noah. Oh, some will make it. But if you can come to terms with nobody made it but eight souls from the Noah story, then it's not so hard to believe when God says, I will completely remove all flesh from the surface of the earth. I want you to take note of something here in Zephaniah 1, which is particularly poignant given the issues that are happening with Jerusalem today. Jerusalem is the center stage of God's future tribulation and judgment. And in the course of him describing the day of the Lord, he says, this is in verse 9, Zephaniah 1, verse 9. He's trying to illustrate so you'll get the sense of how severe this judgment will be. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. And on that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. And a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. The fish gate used to be a gate in old Jerusalem before the Second Temple period. Herod, one of the things that he did um, in the Second Temple period was he built uh, an extending wall of Jerusalem to the north, north of the Temple Mount, and extended into the area that we now have as part of Jerusalem. And it's called the Second Quarter. That as a result of building that new wall, it was about the quarter of the size of Jerusalem, so they called it a Second Quarter was made. And the fish gate was located right there near where the famous Antonian fortress, the great Roman fortress, was built. Herod built that as well. In Jerusalem, I have just described, oh, it says, Whale, O inhabitants of Mortar. That was where the merchants used to set up, the merchants in the city used to set up for Jerusalem's kind of inner city market. 
the ancient part of inner city. And today, in modern Jerusalem, I have described to you the Muslim quarter. Not the Jewish quarter, not the Christian quarter, not the Armenian quarter, the Muslim quarter. And it says that when God's judgment comes so severe that in Jerusalem, the first cry will come from there. The first cry will come from the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem when God's great judgment befalls. If you go today into the old city of Jerusalem and you go right down to that area that it's describing, I'll tell you what you'll find there in Jerusalem. Merchant shops, Arab merchant shops everywhere. Wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, wail all you merchants when my judgment comes. You won't be anymore. That part won't be inhabited anymore in Jerusalem. I find that really, really fascinating. And in particular, I find also fascinating here is it speaks of another kind of man looking at God's future judgment to come, in which that it's a man who's stagnant in spirit. Now, the word stagnant means he's just kind of settled in. Nothing moves him. You know, he's just like water in the bottom of a container. It just doesn't move. It just stays there, and it just gets stagnant. It's not appealing. It's not attractive, but it's just, it's just something there in the container, and it just sits there. And there are some people in their faith, they're stagnant in spirit. And even though we would speak of these incredible superlative terms of God's judgment coming, even though we would mix it and temper his punishment and the negative message here with how great the millennial kingdom will be and how wonderful it will be for the Redeemer to come as king and rule from Jerusalem, and we were to put on the platform in front of people this very negative message coupled with this very positive message, he would sit there and he's so stagnant, he says, the Lord does neither evil nor good. The Lord just does not stir me anymore. I'll tell you what, brethren, if you're not excited about the Lord coming back and getting rid of death from this existence, something's wrong with you. If you do not get excited about that idea that the Lord's going to come back and end disease and end death, and resurrect the saints, that's a pretty good indicator you are stagnant in spirit. And if you are not stirred and moved and concerned about this great judgment that God has said in which that he will do with mankind at the end of the ages, and it doesn't stir you and cause you to be just a little bit concerned and make you want to kind of do a double check, well, you know me, Lord, I mean, you, you and me, Lord, we're all together, right? When you hear about this, if it doesn't phase you anymore... If it doesn't mean anything to you, that's a pretty good indicator that you're also stagnant in spirit. It says that God's judgment at this particular time is particularly poignant and particularly directed to that person who isn't moved by God, either by good news or bad news. He's just not moved anymore by any message of God. He says, I'm going to search that guy out personally. And he and I are going to have a little face-to-face -face interchange. It's kind of interesting that that's how complete the judgment is. It's not just, I'm just going to just wait by everybody out. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to come down and make this judgment personal. Everybody's going to know about it. That's the message of the day of the Lord. That's the message we should be learning when we hear the story of Noah. Every thought was evil continually. Enough is enough. And I think that in our world, we do not have to go very far in researching what is happening openly, not secretly, openly in our world to say, 
surely this is the same God, and surely he would say the same of our generation. And we better be stirred by it. We better not be stagnant in spirit concerning these things. It says that Noah got into the ark, that he floated above the judgment, was guided by God, came to rest on a mountain called Ararat. The prophecy says that you and I are going to be raised up one day, about cloud high, and we will come to rest on a mountain called Jerusalem, just like Noah. We're not supposed to go all the way up into heaven. That's a popular misconception. That's later. That's New Jerusalem. The next stop for us is up into the balcony seats and coming to rest in Jerusalem. Because there's still another thousand years going on here after all this happens, after this day of the Lord. Because I want you to take note that after this whole event took place with Noah, after he came to rest on a mountain, there was a new covenant. Noah made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with him. They set up an altar. They made sacrifices. One of the clean animals each was sacrificed. And as a result, there was a covenant made with Noah with all of mankind. And that's when he did make that wonderful promise to us. I will never again judge the whole world by water. And he said, that won't happen. Now, in our recent days, we've seen a lot of countries judged by water and floods, but it wasn't the whole world. You know, that doesn't mean that he doesn't judge by water. And it doesn't mean that he won't judge the whole world again. It just means that he specified that particular type of judgment. It's almost like I used that particular method with those people. I won't use that again. I'll use something else. The only problem is that something else is usually worse when it comes to the judgment of God. Now, there are a couple of places that I want you to take note of where the prophets specifically refer to the teaching of Noah to us. Turn with me to Isaiah 54. And this is what the prophets are trying to teach us so that we'll take note and understand why Moses recorded this story for us. In Isaiah chapter 54, beginning at verse 4, he says, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For compassion I will gather you in an outburst of anger. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And then verse 9 he says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Did you know that we have another covenant promised to us? We are all right now in the new covenant. You know, Jeremiah 31, And in those days I will make a covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, a new covenant. I will put my laws within their heart, and everyone will know the Lord. But there's another covenant that comes even after that one. It's a covenant that comes after the days, like the days of Noah, in which that mountains are removed, hills shake, complete upheaval of the world, which is what the day of the Lord is about. The day of the Lord is when he comes back with a consuming fire and he makes a new earth for us to live in, a new place. 
And if you were to do a comparison between that new place and the ones that uh, Noah went through, it, it's rather dramatic. Jerusalem is supposed to be the chief of mountains. The sea is no more. There's only really two seasons. You know, the economic system of the world will be vastly different. Man will live, you know, eternally. will have multiple children. If somebody won't build something and another man inhabit, or he won't grow something and another man eats, says the uh, lion and the calf will lay down together again. They'll not prey on each other. Little kids will play at the hole of, a, of an asp and won't be concerned. They won't be bitten. A different kind of world. One we can hardly imagine. But he says the world will go through another change. We will go through that process with him and that he's going to make a covenant with us at the end of it. Just like he made with Noah at the end of that judgment. Only this time it's called the covenant with peace. That's not a lone comment. That's not a lone verse that gives that promise. Look with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 is the great dry bones prophecy that speaks of the return of the house of Judah and the house of Israel back to the land with the same king, Yeshua. And in verse uh, 24, he says, And my servant David will be king over them. At that point, he's been resurrected. And they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They shall live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. You know, ways and why we say the expression Shabbat Shalom? We're giving a forewarning that when the great Sabbath of the millennia comes, we'll have the covenant of Shalom, the covenant of peace. There's one more covenant yet in this plan. There's one more great judgment yet in this plan. There's one more covenant in this plan. It all connects in just like the judgment that came upon Noah. The biggest part, to me, about the whole issue of trying to understand Noah, and particularly drawing application to us in these days, is as the Messiah drew out and he says, well, in those days of Noah, man did not understand. It wasn't for lack of knowledge. Noah was up there warning them for a hundred years. It wasn't for lack of wisdom. Uh, they, they knew that if you have this threat, why well, you need to prepare. They were wise. But they didn't understand. It's almost like they were there and they didn't have eyes and they didn't have ears. They were there. It was happening. They just couldn't see it. They couldn't hear it. And that's what happens to you when every intention, every thought, and your heart disagrees with the Lord. If you had the slightest intention, your intuition would kick in and you'd begin to understand. If you just think it through, just take the evidence and think it. You know, think it would lead you to understand. If your heart had just been yielded to God and you just said, well, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm going to trust you. You know what? God would give you the understanding. You'd get it. And whereas there were in those days, there were those who did not understand, here's the product of them not understanding. What does not understanding produce? Scoffers, mockers. You don't understand it, so you ridicule it to make it go away. And thus, that's what we have today. That's what the prophecy says, that the product of people not understanding, as in the days of Noah, they've become mockers and scoffers. 
And whenever you don't understand something, why well, you tend to ridicule. One of the things that I learn in the professional world as a spiritual principle, every time I would come into a meeting and some new idea would be kicked out, some idea, some something that we could do, uh, a particular way that we could do the work, there, inevitably in the meetings, any time I heard a man, particularly a boss, say, oh, pff, that won't work. You know what I always found to the reason of why he said that? He didn't understand. He flat didn't understand the idea. And so rather than admit that he doesn't understand, which would be, by the way, a kind of a wise thing. You know, a wise man knows the limit of his understanding. Instead, he would ridicule it, kill the idea. Nah, that won't happen. And it's a clear sign to me spiritually today of those men who don't understand. They just And if, when a guy doesn't understand, you can't supply him additional knowledge and help him. You can't gives him some principles of wisdom and help him. This is a pure matter of this guy. Something inside is just not right. And you on the outside are not going to be able to minister inside to the man, either with his intentions, his thoughts, or where his heart is at. But generally all three are fouled up, you know, concerning the Lord about this matter. And so when I find myself in discussions with other brethren, about the end time, the end time scenario. And I go through and I try to ask questions that would lead them to understand, lead them to think, uh, key on their intentions, where their heart is at to try to do it. It's real obvious when you find someone who has no understanding. It's real obvious. They just can't get it. Might as well save your breath. It's truly like they have no ears to hear. And if you recall there, the warnings in Revelation Two and three, to him who has an ear, let him hear. To him who has a heart that can understand, let him hear, is really what it's saying. We have lots of people who have lots of knowledge of prophecies at the end times in this world today. It is not for the lack of knowledge of the prophecies. And it's not for the lack of that we know that we should wisely prepare for the coming of the Lord. The key issue today is we got a bunch of people that just don't understand. They just don't get it. And with that missing component, it is might as well be they had no knowledge or wisdom to begin with because they can't do anything with it. Peter concludes in 2 Peter 3 on this whole point about the second coming and the difficulties that we'll face on this issue by saying this, 2 Peter 3, 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. They just flat forget the story of Noah. They flat forget that it was said in the days of Noah that there was plenty of warning, but the people didn't understand, and they wouldn't heed. And now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger. You know what that means? Do not scoff at these things, because if you do, the chains that are locking you down on the ground will become stronger and you won't be able to escape. You'll be more entrapped by scoffing, by not understanding, 
verse 22, so that there's no question about the context of this. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Gee, that's what Noah heard too. Noah heard in his days that I, the Lord, intend to blot out man. I intend to bring him to an end. I'm going to set some limits. And we, now history past, have seen that what God said was true. What Moses spoke of the story is supported by the facts, by the evidence. Therefore, we should be the people who would look back at the story of Noah and say, boy, the Lord was sure right. When he said he was going to blot mankind out, he was right. So that when we see into the future and he describes this greater judgment that has come with a consuming fire, we'll believe it, we'll not scoff at it, we'll not shrug it off, we'll not ignore it. And in particular, we'll look to that story and realize, you know what? Noah got delivered. This flood, it wiped the whole world out. Noah didn't have to go tread water. Noah prepared. Noah followed the preparation that God gave to him, got in an ark, and was safe. It even says that God closed the door on the ark. And there's also prophecies that speak to us that we're supposed to be preparing. We're supposed to be getting ready. And sure enough, there is an ark down inside here. We better have an ark of faith down here we're getting ready to climb into. And believe God when he says, I will judge the world. And believe God when he says, I will deliver you. That I will make this like the days of Noah. I will remember what I did with Noah. And I will make a new covenant with you, a covenant with peace. And you will live forever with me after this. But as for those who do not understand, the scoffers, the mockers, and so forth, you will see them judged. In fact, the guy who scoffs and he says, God's not going to do anything good or bad. You will see me search that guy out with a lamp, and I will find him, and you will see him judged too. You know, the story of Noah starts out as kind of a fanciful kid story, and it turns out it's a pretty serious adult story. And we who are the people of faith, we who are looking for the coming of the Lord, it is an example to us because we know, of course, that the Messiah said that the judgment that comes upon the world will be just like the days of Noah. They will be swept away. It will come on them quickly. They won't get it. Even after it starts raining, they won't get it. In the Great Tribulation, even after the judgments fall for three and a half years, they still won't get it. The only evidence that you will have to believe God in those days will be because God said it beforehand. And it's as the scripture says, I have told you all these things beforehand so you might believe. And he's told us a lot about those days. I mean, we can see the evidence building right now. We can see what's happening with the solar system. We can see what's happening with the sun. It's acting up, sending out more radiation, causing all kinds of problems. They think that that thing is building so bad. One solar scientist has suggested that by the year 2001, there's a good possibility the whole outer elements of the sun will blow off in all directions in the solar system. And whichever portion of the Earth happens to be in the direction at that time, this is the physics of two spheres, okay? the sun blowing out into the solar system, the earth, a big sphere, receiving this blast. They said that at one moment it is possible that the sun's radiation could burn up one-third of the trees and the grass on the earth. By the way, the physics works out on that. Now, here you are, you're in the early part of the Great Tribulation, the sun does this thing. And you stand up and you say, this is the first trumpet judgment 
of the book of Revelation. I'll tell you what, there's some Christians that are going to be standing in your midst and saying, oh, give me a break. They'll scoff at it. Why? Because they don't understand the radiation from the sun. They don't understand that the prophecy said the sun will scorch mankind. They don't understand the physics of two globes. They don't even understand who revolves around who. Does the earth revolve around the sun or does the sun revolve around the earth? By the way, I don't know if you know this, uh, but 67% of Americans don't know the answer to that. They did the polls. They do them all the time. The average American doesn't even understand the basics of the solar system. So if you don't understand that, how are you going to understand these prophecies? And that's getting ready to happen. I mean, the solar scientists are saying it's getting ready to happen. Not religious men. Scientists say it. It's just a couple of religious guys that says, hey, that matches the prophecy. What prophecy, the scoffer says? We're not supposed to be here when that happens because we don't understand. All of those pieces are getting ready to take shape. In fact, many of the pieces have already begun to take shape. But you know what the problem is about not believing and scoffing? In the course of doing it, it's like it's putting chains on your feet and locking you to the ground. And the people who scoff and mock in these days ahead, they will not be the ones the Scripture refers to as escaping, surviving, and enduring to the end. You see, judgment will be very complete, very specific, and very personal. And the guy who says, I just don't think God would do that, is going to have God come searching for him when he does it, personally. This is serious business. These are serious days that we live in. We ought to be weighing everything that's getting ready to happen in Jerusalem with great sobriety and vigilance. And when we see those things lining up that appear to be lining up, it ought to cause us to absolutely do a double stop and say, what in the world is going on? And what am I going to do? And I would hope it would provoke us to say, you know what? God's word was true. It's happening. And thus, we would believe him. We would understand and we'd be wise and knowledgeable of these things. We would get it. And we would be the people that would be ready. Now, I don't know how much more evidence it's going to take, but with every person, you better be making up your mind what's it going to take. At what point? Is it when you see the altar get set up? Is it when you see the altar get shut down? Is it when you see the false prophet come and set up the image? Is it when you see the Antichrist come to power to rule for 42 months? Is it when the brethren call out and they all say, this is it? When you see the sealed 144,000? When you see the two witnesses get up on the temple? What's it going to take? You know, examine the intentions of our heart. Think it through. Find out where our heart's really at. Because the judgment is for sure coming. It is not for sure that you will be living tomorrow, but it is for sure that God's judgment will be coming. And we ought to be hanging on to that and basing our lives on the Word of God, not on what we see with our natural eyes, or not what we intend with our natural heart. I venture to say, you will be afraid. You will think your whole life has gone to ashes. You'll be weeping, and you'll have the spirit of fainting. And that's the reason why it says there's a call upon those who declare the day of his vengeance. They do a very special grant to God's people when these days hit. They give a garland instead of ashes. They anoint them with the oil of gladness 
instead of weeping. And they put the mantle of praise over them instead of the spirit of fainting. Now, why would God describe those things that will take place? Because that will be the realities of when these days come. I can assure you that when Noah walked in the ark and saw the rain coming, the first thought that hit him was, you know what? If a guy wasn't inside this ark, he could drown out here. And I can assure you, when you see the days of the Great Tribulation begin, you will have the thought, man, if you don't know the Lord, you ain't getting through this. And then it will begin to sink in. My greatest fear for my brethren in the days ahead is, is that we will have given lip service to the Scripture and believing in God. And when the realities hit and our faith is supposed to kick in, there's not a whole lot. You know, it's riding on E. And maybe you haven't gotten the extra flask of oil you should have gotten for your lamps. The story of Noah ought to stir us to remember the days of old, to prepare for the days future. To remember that God we serve did judge the whole world with water before, and he will judge the whole world by fire again in the future. And that Noah did understand and did prepare and did trust the Lord, and he and his family were saved. And that we should do the same as Noah. Trust the Lord follow his preparation, and our whole family and us will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the study of Noah. We thank you, Lord, for Shabbat. Lord, I would pray and ask that this Torah cycle, this year, the story of Noah would resonate in our hearts, that we would be a people who would believe your word. We would be a people who would prepare. We would be a people who would be concerned about life and preserving life. That we would not be mockers and scoffers. We would not be those who don't understand. Lord, that we would turn to the business of building the ark and preparing for our brethren and ourselves. Lord, that we would be sober and vigilant, paying close attention to the prophecies. Close attention to the way that you said you would judge the world. Close attention to the signs along the way. And that, Lord, that you would pour out the spirit of understanding upon all of us. To see, to hear, to weigh our intentions of our heart, our thoughts and our heart before you. And that we would surrender all of those things to you and get ready. Lord, you know my heart concerning this matter. You know that I'm just a finite man. I can only take the available evidence, stack it up. And that last gap to a final decision is based on faith. With humble faith, Lord, we look to you. And we ask that you would cause our faith to be strong in this matter and fill that gap so that we might come to the decision to trust you, that we might put our full weight upon you, even though the whole world tells us differently, even though our own brethren tell us differently, even though our own family members tell us differently, Lord. We will believe your words and put our full weight on them and then let the events happen as they will and we'll see the word of God come alive. So, Lord, we ask that you give us those kinds of eyes. You give us those kinds of thought and heart toward you, that you'd give us the knowledge of the scriptures. Lord, that you would separate out from us our own expectations and intentions and our concerns, Lord, that your concerns would be ours. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429.
Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.